Good afternoon. Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Public Health Law Briefing, presented by our colleagues around the country in association with the Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Wendy Parmet, a professor at Northeastern University School of Law, and joining me Today is my colleague, Emily Spieler, also of Northeastern University School of Law. We'll be taking questions towards the end of the broadcast. Please ask them at Public Health Law Watch, hashtag COVID-19 legal briefings. So when we first started planning for this session, Emily, I think we were focusing mostly on the workplace safety issues for essential workers. But bit by bit, the country is opening up to different degrees, Wisconsin totally by court order last night. And so more and more workers who are not deemed essential are also being going back to work um, and therefore facing some risks at the workplace. Why is the regulation of occupational safety and health so important during this pandemic? Well, to start at the sort of baseline of this, workers, like everyone else, can uh, catch the disease. They can be infected at work. And if they work in groups, that's more likely if they can't or can't or aren't socially distancing. And then workers who've worked in groups at work become vectors into the community for disease. And so you have to pay attention to the existence of this disease as potential clusters at work as a public health matter. And that is that was true in the essential businesses where we didn't do a very good job regulating it. And it will be true in the new the businesses that are reopening now. So as we've seen, communities where more workers have been going to work in essential businesses are much more hard hit than communities where people are like you and me and can stay at home and do their work. And so, for example, in Massachusetts, Chelsea, which is also a community in which many people of color live and who are poor, low-wage workers who go to work and bring home disease and then bring disease back to their workplaces. So the nexus at work is incredibly important to keep an eye. Maybe you could give us a little bit of of an overview of what are some of the key legal tools for addressing workplace safety. And as you suggested, workplace safety has to affect overall safety, right? The overall cost. Right. So um, as you know, my, my specialty is inside the workplace, not just health and safety, other kinds of employment law. The law that everyone thinks about first when they think about workplace safety is the Occupational Safety and Health Act. It's a federal law governing private sector industry, pretty much all private sector industry, although 21 states under OSHA have uh, been approved to have OSHA state plans and they do their own OSHA enforcement. It becomes actually somewhat enforcement, uh, somewhat important in the conversation about um, about the coronavirus. In addition, there's, um, so OSHA enforces standards and they enforce what's called the general duty clause, which essentially says workers have a right to a healthy and safe place. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and in addition, OSHA is not preemptive of the right of states to act in areas areas in which there is not a specific standard at the federal level, even for states that don't have state OSHA plans. Um, so health, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Act is the key law at the federal level, and 
ends up being pretty much the place people go to look for workplace safety regulation. Part of that is because the, the sort of other side of the coin in workplace safety is workers' compensation, which I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about today. But critically, it provides benefits, but also gives employers very broad court immunity from litigation over negligence. And that's going to be true, I believe, coming out of the coronavirus. In addition, we and we can talk a little bit more about it, there are things that local, state, and local health departments can do in this particular kind of situation if there's a cluster disease. Well, maybe we should start with OSHA because not the act, but the agency. And maybe you can tell us what are they doing or what are they not doing? Okay. So needless to say, it's a little bit complicated. So OSHA does not have a standard covering infectious diseases. There was discussion and actually a framework for a standard was put out in 2015, but it never moved ahead. So we don't have any broad regulation of how to deal with a pandemic at all at OSHA. There are some very specific standards on respiratory protection and sanitation, stuff like that, but not something that is broadly relevant here. And so the only thing that OSHA can really use in this situation is this general duty clause in the statute, which is actually rarely used by OSHA in general and creates um, both bureaucratic and legal barriers to successful regulation because of the way it's been interpreted by the courts. So what OSHA has done is put out a bunch of guidelines, often consistent or referring to the CDC guidelines. And the guideline, and they have also ranked the level of risk in workplaces. And this is only at this point about um, essential work. So um, presumably everybody else is at the bottom of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is two categories of workers who actually are in direct contact with people who have COVID-19 or with the bodies of those people. So um, people who do intubation in the hospitals are in the highest group, but transport workers who carry patients to the hospital are in the second group. And in those groups, OSHA has said that where necessary, they will enforce the general duty clause, although there has been no sign of a single citation being issued anywhere um, that I've been able to find. Um, that said, it often takes OSHA six months to put out a citation. So um, doesn't make it a very good agency for responding to a crisis. Um, for all the other workers, they've essentially said that they will do consultation and um, and they'll send a letter to an employer. But if you're talking about the meatpacking plants as a very good example of this, they're very unlikely to be aggressively enforcing the law. And interestingly, the CDC and OSHA guidelines on what should happen if somebody is exposed to someone with the disease are the and if the person is asymptomatic, they should continue to go to work, um, which, right, which caused an uproar in the um, communities of people who work with trade unions and worker centers and do labor law about the fact that this is quite clearly very different from what's been proposed for the rest. And I assume that partly the reason is that OSHA is feeling the tension between keeping the essential businesses going, as is expected, and the fact that if there 
there's a lot of people who have been exposed to a worker um, quarantine, they may not to do that. The guidance that OSHA put out on this is um, leaving that piece aside and the fact that they're essentially doing no enforcement is fairly reasonable about suggesting engineering controls and ventilation and suggesting administrative controls that uh, give more flexibility to who shows up at work when and those kinds of things in addition to the um, social distancing and hygiene and so on. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned that, um, I think you said 21 states um, have state plans and authority under OSHA. Um, What are they doing? Anything different? So California actually has a very uh, comprehensive infectious disease standard. I don't know exactly how they're enforcing it, but they are capable of acting in a way that OSHA is not. It's federal OSHA is not. So they they have a different set of tools in California um, to address the problem. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. In other states with state plans, but which don't have infectious disease um, standards, the in at least one state, there's been a coming together of a governor's executive emergency order that rolls in at, at a minimum what the CDC and OSHA have recommended as an enforceable um, guideline. And in Oregon, the state OSHA agency has picked that up and in fact has already cited one food processing plant where they were non-compliant with social distancing. So in those states, there is the capacity to do to act more quickly because they have a structure in place to do it workplace safety and Enforcement, and if they don't have a standard, they can work together with the Departments of Public Health and the governor to create um, mechanisms to do that. Outside of the OSHA um, context, um, what else can states and local health departments do? Can some of their general public health powers apply here? What else are you seeing? Yeah, so there's actually a lot that can be done and less that is being done than could be done, frankly. So any state um, could enact some kind of infectious disease rule because there is none at the federal level and made an enforcement mechanism for doing that. None have. Quite a a number of states now have issued what are viewed as enforceable orders, even if they don't have OSHA state plans that roll in the OSHA and CDC guidelines, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, New Jersey, a number of other states. Um, But it's not clear that they have the enforcement mechanism to do that. Here in Massachusetts, where Governor Baker is talking about doing that as each at each phase of his role in, um, I think there will be discussions about whether enforcement's going to come from the Department of Labor Standards or the Attorney General's office or where. I think, to, though, to turn to your question about the public health agencies, I think that's an incredibly important area. Um, local public health agencies have a huge amount of power in a situation like this, and they absolutely can use it in um, to address concerns in their local communities. And as an example, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, we have a very, um, we have a seafood processing industry, mostly uh, staffed by immigrant workers. Mostly, about half of them come through staffing temp agencies to work in the facilities. And there have been a lot of concerns about clusters in those facilities. The New Bedford Health Department moved ahead first with some direct orders to a couple of those facilities ordering them to close and sanitize and stay closed for a certain period of time, and now has issued a broader order on industrial facilities under their, um, about under their geographic and political purview, ordering them to take a variety of me- 
measures to um, be try to address prevention in the workplace. So, and as far as I can tell, that could be done anywhere. We have, however, as we don't have a federal, general, federal, clear strategy for addressing the pandemic, having local health departments act on their own is um, is a good thing. But there ought to be a coordinated response to this, obviously. And I'm hoping that more states will move to that, particularly with the reopening, where more and more people are going to be moving out of workplaces where they really need to be um, practicing social distancing, doing a variety of things around hygiene, wearing masks and doing a variety of things in order to um, keep the spread of disease down. There is one thing I I want to mention that I meant to mention before, which is that we know we have a problem right now because there's been a surge in whistleblower complaints to OSHA. OSHA has a, the Occupational Safety and Health Act has a provision for um, people who are, um, feel that they've been retaliated against as a, because they brought forward safety concerns. And there have been about 1,100 complaints filed at this point with federal OSHA. Some of them have been referred out to states. They've only actually resolved eight of them. Um, or maybe it's up to 11, I'm not sure. But in any event, again, there's this real lag time. OSHA is simply not a crisis agency. And, these, and I, I testified at a public hearing that OSHA had this week on this issue because I think they need to be referring these complaints to local health boards of health and state boards of health if they really raise safety concerns because those are the agencies that connect with them. Um, are, we've been hearing a little bit about whistleblower complaints about safety issues. Um, are there whistleblower complaints and mechanisms outside of this OSHA complaint process? Um, so there's much discussion about this, but um, and a little bit it depends on the states. So the state plan states, some of them actually have somewhat better structures in place to deal with whistleblower complaints. And because they also have a local state plan, they're in a much better position to go out to check on real problems that are raised in those complaints in terms of the ongoing safety issues. Um, Many of us think that there is probably room for civil actions um, under the common law, but that's largely, that's been tested around safety in a handful of states and um, succeeded in a few. There may be more of that as this goes forward because of how unresponsive the agencies have been, but it is definitely an open area for um, more litigation. It just happens that the provision under OSHA for whistleblowers is about the weakest one on the federal books, maybe because it was an early one, 1970, and it's never been amended, but it's very weak on a variety of important parameters, and it means that people really don't get justice when they raise these complaints. The inspectors are supposed to, the investigators are supposed to refer the safety concerns on, but as I said, they're not doing much about the safety issues. Um, and so it's it, it does seem like it's a really problematic situation. We are running low on time, but I did want to ask you to touch upon, you mentioned litigation a moment ago, and you and I were talking earlier about it. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the role of litigation and where the unemployment comp system comes in and how they intersect or don't intersect in all of this. I'm not sure. I'm so not an expert on unemployment, although I do understand that if a worker, at least here, there are different rules in different states to some extent, but I think that if a worker is told to stay home because of, um, of the virus and they aren't getting some other benefits like sick paid sick leave, they should be getting UI. As to other litigation, there was a very interesting case brought against Smithfield, a meatpacking plant. Um, it was a case seeking an injunction 
permission to get the plant to institute certain safety practices. And ultimately, it was thrown out by the federal judge um, they, he, who felt that this was a, an arena for OSHA to address. But I don't think that litigation is fully foreclosed. Um, there were things about the way it this particular case was brought and there were issues with that judge. I think if these if it, if the pandemic calmed down and there continue to be clusters in workplaces that aren't being addressed in reasonable ways, I think we're going to see more of that kind of litigation that won't be foreclosed by workers' comp because it's not about a remedy for an injury, but asking for future protection for workers and for the community, since workers are, in fact, members of the community. And what about workers' comp? Is it available for people, let's say, at the meatpacking plants or healthcare workers? Well, so everyone who I've talked around the country thinks that it's likely that healthcare workers will have successful workers' comp claims and that outside of healthcare and morgues and EMTs and some first responders that those are more difficult to bring. And it, it isn't at all clear how that's going to play out in the various states. A number of states have instituted presumptions of causation, the, the broadest one in California, where the governor issued a, um, a very broad, anybody who got sick, essentially, who I think was working in an essential industry, there would be a presumption they got it at work. In Illinois, that was done in, um, by executive order as well. And the Retailers Association and the Manufacturers Association immediately brought an injunctive action and the judge immediately issued an injunction and the Illinois agency withdrew the um, order. And I don't know if there's litigation yet in California, but I can't imagine there won't be. And so I think that that arena is very unclear. Frankly, and this is someone, I'm, I say this as someone who's worked in the workers' comp arena for a very long time. I'm not sure workers' comp is the right way to deal with this. My personal view is that people really need continued health insurance and that um, comp only gives it to you for the um, the injury or illness that's the subject of the complaint. And people really need wage continuation. And those two things maybe could be addressed without litigating everybody's um, causation issues. And I, I so my I'm very um, mixed about whether comp is the right avenue for addressing the disease that arises at work in this particular kind of situation. If it's the right place, then we have to figure out a way to limit the amount of litigation there is and not allow um, every employee to file a case and every employer to go rooting around to find out if the worker was exposed somewhere in their social and personal lives. Because right now I think we're facing that kind of litigation and that I think is not for the system and not good for the disease either. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we're running out of time and um, these issues will keep arising. So maybe we will talk again. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and um, helping us to understand some of these incredibly critical issues that I think are going to be even more, we're going to be facing more of them in the next few weeks. We will be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday. Um, just go to at Public Health Law Watch or search for hashtag COVID Law Briefing. Um, we also archive um, the audios of this at uh, www.twihl this week in Health Law's podcast. Uh, the COVID-19 legal briefings are produced by Faith Collick and Bethany Saxon. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Please stay healthy.